0: heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us as we continue profiling books and authors with connections to the Appalachian region. And I'm delighted to have a returning author with us back on the program for the first time since 2021. She is historian Dr. Lindsay Stravinsky, and she is out with a terrific new book that if you like history, if you like the presidency, and anything and everything connected to those, you're going to love her brand new book. It's called Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture, uh, that she helped edit and co edit with uh, Dr. Matthew Costello. And Lindsay is back with us for the first time. She's a presidential, or the second time, actually, first time since 2021. She is a presidential historian, a writer, and a speaker. She writes about politics, government institutions, and the cabinet. And she is currently a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential Studies at Southern Methodist University. And she also teaches about the presidency at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. And when she's not teaching and writing books. She loves hiking with her American foxhound, who's got the coolest name ever, John Quincy Dog Adams, although she calls him Quincy for short. So, Lindsay, it's so good to have you uh, back on the program. Uh, We haven't had you back on since uh, 2021 with your book on George Washington and the Cabinet, but delighted to have you back on to talk about this new book. So welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me back. It's great to be here.
0: Really great to have you here. And before we get into the book, I wanted to ask you about something um, that is really kind of connected to your book in some ways, or would be connected to your book in some ways. Uh, As we record this interview on President's Day 2023, uh, many of us got the news over the weekend leading into President's Day that uh, former President Jimmy Carter um, is now in hospice care after uh, battling some illness and some cancer issues over the last few years. He is now refusing treatment and is now uh, in the care of hospice. I wanted to ask you just a little bit, uh, or just ask you to comment a little bit about Jimmy Carter. And as we get to the last stages and the last days of his life, how do you think he's going to be remembered? And sort of tying into your book, what might his, uh, his funeral, his burial, what might some of this look like uh, as we prepare for that uh, in the days and weeks ahead?
1: a great place to start, and it's very much been on my mind this weekend in sort of an unfortunate timeliness of this book coming out. I think President Carter will be remembered for being fairly unusual in that he's really kind of recrafted his legacy in a way that this book shows is really, really hard to do. So most presidents... Whatever they do during their presidency kind of sticks, even if they have a very long life post-presidency, because it's the time where they have the most media coverage and they have the most power and they have the most ability to influence events. And Carter left office pretty disliked his his popularity ranking was quite low he was blamed for a lot of the economic issues he was blamed for a lot of diplomatic issues going poorly a lot of people felt like america's place on this on the world stage was really crumbling and he was really i think viewed as being sort of a honest curmudgeon like he was too honest with the american people about some of the misfortunes that were going on rather than being an upbeat happy warrior like his successor ronald reagan and yet, now people, I think, see Carter as this incredible humanitarian. He's devoted the last several decades to service, whether it be Habitat for Humanity, his Carter Foundation through the Presidential Library, is responsible for helping cure multiple diseases across the globe and saved millions of lives. They've played a pivotal role in ending or stopping or helping bring to a close. Uh, conflicts in multiple different continents. And he's seen, I think, also as a, a fairly genuinely decently good person, which really shouldn't, I think, be underrated. You know, he has a lovely multiple, I mean, so I think I was reading the other day that he and Rosalind were married in 1946. And so his marriage, his family, his faith, his humility, his humbleness. I think all of these things are incredibly commendable and will come to the front of people's minds in a way that some other presidents like Hoover or Nixon had a much harder time recrafting their legacy once they left office.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. I, I can't think of a president in my lifetime who has meant more to the country, has meant more to people in other countries who are suffering and are uh, downtrodden than Jimmy Carter between, you know, monitoring elections for the United Nations from, you know, uh, building habitat for humanity homes, like you were talking about and just his sense of service post-presidency. I can't think of, of of any president that has done more in my lifetime. And I think, you know, in the, in the decades to come, we'll look back on him and, and what he did post-presidency is sort of the gold standard for how you can have sort of this second life after politics, uh, and really use that that platform and that that legacy or that history to to do some good. So uh, I, I really appreciate you uh, commenting on that. And I wanted to, to mention that since we had you here and it does kind of tie in uh, a little bit to your book. So when we had you back on in 2021, uh, we were talking about your book, The Cabinet, which was about George Washington and his assemblage of the the first, what we commonly know as the presidential cabinet and, and why that matters and why that holds true today. So this book's a little different. Now we're talking about sort of something different, which is, is mourning the presidents and, and looking back on um, on how presidents sort of um, h- how the end of their lives were handled and, and kind of what the legacy was like after after their death. So what made you interested in this and kind of shifting focus to, to collecting these essays and wanting to be an editor on this kind of book? How did you get interested in this?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the driving forces, I think, of my scholarship is I'm really curious about the relationship between the presidency and the American people. It is very unique. It is unique in that it is the only position in American public life where one person represents all Americans. And it's super powerful and has really, I think, the ability to put its thumbprint on history in a way that is unparalleled. And so while that might not seem From the title page, like a focus of this book, one of the things that I found so fascinating and the question for me that drove this volume was what do American people's responses to presidential deaths say about the country. And so Matthew Costello, my co-editor and I, we started talking about this subject in the wake of George H.W. Bush's passing and seeing the response to his death, the tributes to his legacy, the remembrances of who he was as a human. And while I think a lot of them were true, a lot of them also seemed as though they were more of a reflection of who Bush was vis-a-vis Donald Trump, who is currently in office focused on Bush's kindness, his decency, his sense of humor, uh, his, his steadiness in handling foreign policy. And again, while I think a lot of those things really are true, they seemed to be more about what we were going through as a country and what the American people felt was lacking in politics at the time. And that's a really interesting cultural phenomenon. And so we started wondering, was that true at other moments? How did American people respond to other presidential Best. And what might that say about American culture and society at that moment? And so we started thinking about how we could put this volume together. And as we were talking before we press record, we kind of did a, a piecemeal approach in that we knew we wanted to have certain big names like Washington and Lincoln and Kennedy. You can't really have a book on morning without those big names. But we also wanted to bring something to bear that maybe people didn't already know. So if we had some names like Taylor or Hoover or Andrew Johnson, that might really add something to our knowledge and make this volume even more of a contribution.
0: Yeah, that's really a great point. And, you know, when you mention those names, some of those names, Johnson and Hoover and Andrew Johnson and and Herbert Hoover and some of those, you can almost if if you're in a room full of 30 people, you can almost watch people kind of turn their nose up and kind of give a pinched look on their face because there's so much negative connotation surrounding their presidencies and they're that they're known for just, you know, one or two certain things that that have identified them. Hoover, of course, being the the Great Depression, Andrew Johnson being, you know, the the, the perpetuating, uh, uh, you know the end of reconstruction and not really wanting to 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 carry forward with reconstruction and a bunch of other things plus he was an alcoholic and mean and all these other things but uh, (laughs) yeah yeah. real jerk (laughs) a real jerk I mean just one of the worst but yeah it's really great that that those folks got some some attention in the book as well uh, in addition to um, uh, some sort of sort of more legacy presidencies that that we think about I did want to ask you about one legacy president that is mentioned early in the book and that's Thomas Jefferson Um, I I did some little research I love the S Essay on him and Andrew Davenport uh, did the essay, wrote the essay on on Jefferson's story. Uh, I did a little research on him and discovered that he is actually a descendant through the Sally Hemings line. Uh, and of course, you know the story about Jefferson and Sally Hemings having an affair and him fathering a lot of her children. Um, so I found I found that really interesting. But something else that really caught my attention about that is how at the end of Jefferson's life he was in such debt uh, at the end that. A lot of his slaves that were that were there at Monticello had to be sold off, and one of the things that Andrew kind of talks about in that story is how there was sort of this 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 generational familial breakdown amongst amongst the, the the slave uh the slaves themselves because families were separated. Some stayed on the plantation, some were sold to plantations in the South, and you had sort of this generation or these generations of of slave families that were broken apart, really never to be reunited again. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, why that has such a a lasting impact when we think about him and his death and and, and how we mourned him but also kind of the after effects of, of of once he was buried and 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 you know his estate was settled I guess for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up this chapter. I think it, it provides such an important contribution to the story, and I think also a really important part of the Jefferson narrative that isn't always covered. Usually, we hear the Adams and Jefferson died on the same day. It was fifty years to the day after the signing of Declaration of Independence, which of course is extraordinary and kind of creepy as a has a historical moment of fate. But that was really only part of of what happened, and as you said. When Jefferson died, he was so deeply in debt that the only way that those debts could be covered without them being passed on to his children was for his heirs to sell the house and then auction off most of the enslaved individuals that were held at Monticello. Now, a couple of the enslaved individuals were given the opportunity, and I say that in in very, very serious air quotes, to sort of select the people that purchased them, if if they're children or they had family members that were owned by individuals in Charlottesville or nearby. Sometimes they could arrange a deal such that the estate was still getting the funds, but they could stay close and retain those family and kinship networks. But that was for a relatively small portion of the enslaved population. The vast majority of them were sold off at this auction. And so Jefferson's death had a double meaning for that community that we often forget in that not only some of them genuinely did have affection for for this former president, including those who were his family, the enslaved individuals who were his blood and, you know, actual blood relatives, but their lives also, this, this moment was a turning point in which everything was going to be destroyed and nothing would be as it was. And as you pointed out, for those who were in Virginia, many of the those individuals were able to save up money and purchase their own manumission over time. And so they started the process as free individuals of building families, of owning property, and trying to have you know, their own version of the American dream earlier. The people who were sold to the Deep South to work in the growing cotton empire did not have that opportunity. And so many of those family lines not only were they broken and a lot of people still don't know where their ancestors went or or who their ancestors were but they also were set back ac- economically by decades and people at the time who were at Jefferson's funeral often remarked how many mourners were present but they only meant white mourners there were no there was no mention of black mourners and so we felt it was really essential to bring that part of the story to bear just because it really, it is a huge part of his legacy and both both in terms of like physical linkages legacy, but also part of the story we do have to remember.
0: Yeah, very good, very good. And one of the things that um, you emphasize in, in a lot of, uh, the, of the essays or that we see in a lot of the essays is that 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 some presidents and we talked about one. I'm going to ask you about here in just a second. Really thought that um, sort of their that their post presidency and, and their death could maybe connect to a rehabilitation of the reputation. And one of those we talked about a minute ago was Richard Nixon. Now there's there's not a a chapter in the book on Nixon uh, or his presidency, but I know that in reading a lot of books on him and and reading a lot of you know reading his memoirs and reading all of those. Um, post-Cold War books that he wrote about the Soviet Union and all those letters he sent to Ronald Reagan about foreign policy and all of this, that Nixon really tried to spend the latter part of his life rehabilitating himself. And as we look at all the presidents and we think about, you know, mourning the presidents, we think about, you know, the second half of of their lives and their deaths. How common was that? How many presidents do you feel like you wanted that opportunity to kind of be a moment where people forgot some of the bad things that they had done and 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 would eulogize them in a different way is it was it really common not as common or was it a mixed bag how how did that kind of play out when you look at all the the presidents that have that have served
1: I think it's probably a mixed bag. I mean, I think every president who lives long enough to return to being a normal civilian probably has some things they would like to be forgotten. That's I think a, a pretty standard part of the human condition uh at this point. Um and and you know some really did have lengthy post-presidential lives. So John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, um Herbert Hoover, Richard Nixon, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, they all had pretty extensive post-presidential lives to do something with themselves. And that, I think, has become a more common part of our political life as people are living longer. And so our life expectancies are naturally longer, and so there's just more time to be a post-president. And I think people are increasingly having to think about what is the right thing to do, how is, the right, how is it the right way to be a post-president, and I don't know that there's necessarily one right answer. We've certainly seen a lot of different answers in the last couple of years. So another example of someone who I think really had a lot of time to craft their legacy but was able to do so perhaps in a more effective way than Richard Nixon or Herbert Hoover was Theodore Roosevelt. He did have a he was a very young man as president and he had a lot of time to get into trouble or to do some other things uh in his post-presidential life. So he started a third party, he went on a worldwide tour, he went hunting in Africa he was still very devoted to environmental conservation and i think towards the end of his life was uh, particularly focused on america's place on the world stage so took a very active role in trying to push the united states into world war 1 but he he was able to craft what he wanted people to remember him as and so he focused on certain things like having a strong foreign policy uh, progressive causes like environmental protection and and food and worker safety things like that, and and his family continued that legacy in a way that was quite effective. Now, I think they had more to work with than someone like Herbert Hoover. So. Hoover had an extraordinary pre-presidential career. He had served admirably. He had been really in charge of the post-World War I programs in Europe to help uh, families and communities and countries recover. In fact, he's still really beloved in Europe in a way that he is not in the United States. But the problem was that his presidency was such a dark mark that neither what he did before or what he did after could quite overcome it especially because he wasn't necessarily the warmest and fuzziest of characters to begin with. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt, I think, had a lot in his presidency to work with and then had such a charismatic presence that he could kind of overcome some of the more perhaps negative traits.
0: And you mentioned uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I was going to ask you about that in reading the essay about him. He's kind of memorialized post-presidency in several different places. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt Island, the National Park Service has kind of taken up uh, opportunities to memorialize him, Mount Rushmore. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about about why Roosevelt, and it could be for some of the reasons you just mentioned, kind of uh, his charismatic personality and what he did during his presidency, But but why someone like him kind of gets... Uh, memorialized in four different places by kind of four different groups uh, as opposed to maybe someone who only gets um, memorialized uh, at their birthplace or at their presidential library or something like that?
1: Absolutely. Well, I think part of it is as our society has evolved, we are less associated with place. And that's because we tend to move around more as a society and we don't have the same sort of estate inheritances and practices that, for example, Washington and Jefferson did. So they're very place associated. And so it's really easy to commemorate them and to celebrate them and, and remember them at their place. Whereas Roosevelt didn't really have a place because his childhood home was destroyed pretty early on and where he was living when he died was still very much a family home. And so it didn't really make sense to immediately convert into some sort of site or museum because he still had a wife and children that were and grandchildren that were around Um, I think he also, perhaps unlike some of the others, he was such a huge personality that he kind of defies categorization. And he had a couple of different stages in his life, which is why I think it's understandable that he has sort of a New York place. And then he has a North Dakota place because he really talked about how pivotal that time in his life was to shaping the person that he became. But what I also like about Theodore Roosevelt, and I think also his heirs have done a really phenomenal job of this, is recognizing that how we commemorate a president probably should evolve over time. It's okay for it to evolve. And how we think of them and what we respect and their legacy probably should change as we change our values themselves. And so, for example, in the last couple of years, a statue of Roosevelt on horseback was removed from the front of the National, uh, the Natural History Museum in New York City. And it was removed because it showed him on horseback and then there were two men that were on foot. One was depicted as a, as an African man and one was depicted as a Native American. And while I don't know that this was the intention of the creator, it definitely conveyed a sense of a racial hierarchy. And because of where it was out out front of the museum, they really couldn't contextualize it in a way that they felt was appropriate. And even Roosevelt's family kind of became uncomfortable with the imaging and the values that it was presenting. And so everyone agreed that it should be removed. It is now in a museum or it's going to be in a museum in North Dakota where they can properly contextualize it. And I think that that's probably a best case scenario for how we should really be rethinking and, and revisiting these things with great care and integrity.
0: Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky is our guest here today on this episode of Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about uh, this brand new book that she has co-edited with Dr. Matthew Costello. The title of it is Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. And Lindsay, we'll come back to the uh, book in just a second. But I wanted to ask you uh, one question first, because I I, I know you are are such an excellent scholar and the folks aren't following you on Twitter and subscribing to your newsletter, which we'll ask you about here in just a little bit. They need to, because you, you always learn so much and you always give us such really good, fresh, interesting perspectives on, on American history and the presidency. But when you're not reading scholarship and you're not reading historical things uh, and you're just sort of reading for pleasure, what are some things that you like to read?
1: So I listen to a lot of history books on Audible that are not my time period. If they're my time period, I can't listen to them because I end up wanting to take notes and that doesn't work for me. But <laughs> so, for example, right now I'm listening to a book about uh, Dwight Eisenhower on Audible. And that's really fun. And then when I'm reading for fun, I read a lot of what I call trash fiction. Um, Now it's not actually trash because anything that you enjoy and that makes you happy is great in my book. But I love like detective mystery series that are set not in our current time period. So it has to be at a different time. Ideally, it's a different country. They're kind of ridiculous, but they're really the only thing that fully turns my brain off. Like when I'm watching TV, I don't, turn off my brain and I play on my phone whereas if I'm reading I really disengage so it is it is essential for me to have those very silly books in my life
0: is your reading process for sort of the 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 trash fiction is it the same or different uh than when you're reading something you know historical either in your time period or or outside of your time period do you do you find yourself like you mentioned wanting to take notes do you find yourself doing that even with fiction or it it, have have you tricked your brain to be like no this is fiction we're just going to read it for the story
1: I've totally tricked my brain, so it it is almost as though I have different brains. And um, with fiction, I actually sort of like go into this trance where I'm I, sp- I speed read uh, fiction, only fiction, and I can like not hear anything that's happening. Like my husband can be having a conversation with me and I will be responding, but I do not know that I'm responding. And then all of a sudden I'll look up and I'll be like, oh shoot, what did I just say? Like, what were we talking about? So it's totally different, which is I think why it's so restorative and really quite helpful.
0: Very nice. And when you put together a, a collection of, of of scholarship or a collection of essays like this, I, I know you and Matthew work together on this project. H- how does that process work in terms of you know, collecting, you know, the call goes out for the essays, collecting the essays, kind of reviewing them, uh, talking with Matthew about what you've received and, and all of that. You know, what's the give and take back and forth like and, and timeline wise? How long did it take you guys to to get the, the first draft together where you felt like you had at least a, a good first rough draft? How long did it take you to get from there from the time you had the idea to put this project together?
1: Well, I think everyone probably, well, I should say, I think all volume editors probably have a different process but Matthew and I we I previously worked at the White House Historical Association with him and so we had a really good sort of vibe down of how we edited other people's work because we we edited a lot of essays that went up on the website and so we put out a call for papers as well as made targeted introductions or requests to try and get specific people to write specific chapters if we knew that they might have a good perspective like so for example the Lincoln chapter on Uh, Lincoln's Passing by Martha Hodes, Martha had written a phenomenal book called Morning Lincoln. And we basically said, can you pull from some of that book and create a chapter? Because it was this award-winning, amazing book. So why would you recreate greatness? Just like pull some of the greatness from there and let's put it in the chapter. And she was thankfully amenable to that. So then once we had some submissions, we were really trying to find a balance between The chronological centuries and big names and small names. We also wanted to have different approaches. So we wanted to make sure there were public historians as well as tenure track professors and sort of everything in between. And then we had started putting together this project in 2019. And our plan was to have an in-person workshop the August of 2020 with the first draft of chapters spoiler alert, that did not happen. Uh, Like many things, COVID threw a bit of a wrench in those plans. And so we decided to basically postpone it until the following summer. And we would have everyone circulate chapters in the spring, we would send some feedback, and then everyone would get together in the summer. We ended up having to do that virtually again, because there was another sort of outbreak, which was unfortunate. But I do think that workshop process really made for a, a better contribution and a better product. So we did that. We did another round of revisions. We did some peer review. Matt and I are fairly intensive editors, which we believe that edits are a love language. And if we don't care, then we won't edit your work. And if we do care, we will. So hopefully the (laughs) participants were willing to take that view as well. Um, So it really ended up being pretty much a three-year process because we had the page proofs and copy edits and all of that this past fall in October of 2022. And then of course it came out, uh, today, uh, we're filming on president's day. So, um, it has been a long, it has been a long time in coming. I don't think it would have been quite that long without COVID, but it definitely went through many stages because we believed that it would create a better product and hopefully readers will agree.
0: The title of the book we're talking about is "Mourning the Presidents: Loss and Legacy in American Culture." Our guest is Dr. Lindsay Svirinsky. She is the one of the co-editors of this book, along with Dr. Matthew Costello. And uh, Lindsay, I wanted to go back. Uh, I've got an, an, another question about another essay, but I, I wanted to. Uh, I, we, we've been talking and talking about about legacies and presidencies and how presidents are remembered. And I was I was just thinking about. I loved the Kennedy essay, and and I was going to ask you to talk about that in just a second. That was another one of my favorite ones in, in the collection, but I was thinking about. You know, as we've been talking, you know, really from 1963 to about 1972 or three, our country had suffered the loss of so many presidents. Kennedy had been assassinated. Eisenhower, I think, died of a heart attack in 69. Hoover died maybe in 68. Um, Lyndon Johnson died in 73, I believe. And so you think about th- th- those men and what they represented, the the, the time periods that they represented. I, I can't think of an, of a time where we've had, you know, within 25 years. Truman was in there too. Robert Harry Truman died in that time period as well. Um, and you think about what those men represented, both a, a, as leaders and as men, but the time periods and the situations that they represented. I can't think of another time in American history where you had that many presidents in the span of about twenty-five years die at one time. Can can you talk a little bit about that, and and maybe what you feel like the psyche of the country was as as so many of those presidents uh, that that people remembered from from World War II, but back to the Great Depression and and so on. Um, had so many major monikers that they represented as they started to die, kind of almost, you know, within in some cases five years of each other. What what was the psyche of the country as we look back on that period, and and what are your thoughts on that about how they were, with well, the country's attitude and how they were remembered as 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 so many of these of these presidents passed away in such a short kind of window.
1: It's a it's a great question and one that actually I haven't really thought all that much about, but now that I now that you've asked it. I think that the 1960s and the 1970s are are one of the moments that I tend to point to of of great crisis in our nation. So you know we don't have we didn't have a civil war, and uh, you know I'm not sure that we had as big of a economic depression as the 1930s. But it, there was a lot of political violence. There was a lot of strife. There was a lot of concern about civil rights and wars. And I'm not sure how much we can disentangle those things from all of the various deaths. I think some of the deaths, of course, Kennedy's included was a, a symptom of some of this political violence, but also The United States, for better or for worse, and I could make an argument either way, puts a lot of stock in our presidents. The presidency is sort of the touchstone of our political system. It's the one person that represents everyone. And so as a result, when we lose them, it can be a little bit destabilizing. And this was true all the way back, especially for Washington, because he was the father of the country, which people physically called him that. He was the only president that most people had known, and they didn't—they weren't genuinely weren't sure if the country would really survive without him there as this symbolic presence to kind of be a safety blanket. Now I think we've evolved some from that place because we have history, and the longer that we survive, I think the more confident we are in that survival. But people like Eisenhower were these towering figures in American political life. And their existence, even if they weren't in office, served to give the political system legitimacy and served to help bolster its future survival. And so as these individuals did start to pass away, that can be really destabilizing for people. And just based on sort of actuarial tables, at some point, we're going to hit a point where we're going to have several passings, probably in in a sort of a clump, maybe in the next couple of decades, just based on how the age of some of our former presidents. And people will find, I think, it a little bit destabilizing, because it's either a sign of, you know, a world gone by, or a time that we won't get back again, or, you know, someone that has been a part of our consciousness in a way that we don't even necessarily think about all that often, that is no longer present.
0: Yeah, very well said. I just wanted to, I I was just thinking about that. I wasn't on my list of questions, but as we were talking about, about Teddy Roosevelt, we were talking about Nixon, and I was thinking about that, that from 63 to really 73, you know, you had, you had Kennedy, you had Eisenhower, you had Truman, you had Hoover, and you had Johnson, all, Lyndon Johnson all died within that that time period. And I, I just thinking about that just really makes me, and I wasn't alive during that period, obviously, but just thinking about that, I can just imagine what, what that did, as you mentioned, sort of destabilizing folks and making people feel like, oh my goodness, you know, we, we are in a new era now because these these towering leaders of the past are gone. So I was going to ask you about Ke- the Kennedy essay, which I love, but I wanted to ask you about one more because I think it might be a good way uh, to finish this up, uh, our discussion up. And that's Franklin Roosevelt, the, the the essay on FDR. And I believe is the, the I know we don't have, um, the cover of the book and our audience can't see it, but is is the cover of the book? Is that Roosevelt's funeral? That that is his casket it is. being on the carriage. Yes. Okay, um, so I thought that was really neat to to choose him for the for the cover of the book and his funeral. Um, but he really kind of sta- established a precedent that we are enjoying today as we think about mourning our presidents and, and remembering our presidents, and that's the presidential libraries. We didn't have these really until FDR kind of made it uh, a thing or kind of wanted to make it a thing. Can you talk a little bit about that and the impact that presidential libraries have had as we think about mourning the presidency and, and, and looking back on these leaders?
1: Absolutely. Well, I just want to say one thing about the FDR chapter, which I think is such a good reminder and one that I often forget. But when FDR died, he had been in office for 12 years, which is a really long time, uh, and had just been elected for four more, which is just crazy. Um, But so for a whole generation of young adults, he was the only president they remembered. And he had adopted technology in a way that no one really had before in that he would use his radio addresses to speak into people's homes, almost like I mean, obviously, our listeners are all podcast listeners or radio listeners. So, you know, what that sort of intimate relationship is like. I know for podcasts I listen to, I feel like they're my buddies, even though I've never met them. Um, And I think a lot of people had that feeling with FDR because he spoke into their homes, he spoke about their concerns, they felt like he saw them. And so when he died, they literally, people felt as though they were losing a family member. And talk about destabilizing, but the concept of of who's going to be president after that is the feeling I think we really can't understate. So the mourning for FDR was tremendous and genuine and overwhelming, especially because he had been president during the Great Depression, the creation of the New Deal State, and World War II. So I mean, just 100 lives smashed into 12 years. But as you said, he also really totally transformed the presidency and how we think about presidential legacy, how we think about presidential history, and how we think about presidential mourning. He was the first to have a presidential library. Now, other presidents prior to FDR had preserved their papers and had made them accessible to historians and writers. But FDR was the first to kind of do that officially in a a set place. And based on that, the National Archives actually created a system, which now most of the presidential libraries are under the NARA system, not all, but most. And uh, I think that this is really essential because it's a place where people can go to learn about the president. It's a place where their legacy can be shared, and I think a more detailed fashion than just you know like a, a a movie or you know a part of a history book or something like that. And as our laws, of course, have evolved, it is a way to preserve the records and the documents of that history to try and ensure we have a more detailed, comprehensive, and hopefully objective view of what happened during that administration.
0: So, Lindsay, as we finish up with you today on the program, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, uh, first of all, let us know if uh, how we can follow you, if, if listeners want to keep in touch with you to find out about uh, what you're up to, what you're working on and, and how things go uh, as this book uh, makes it out uh, into the world. Uh, how can they follow you and keep up with you, first of all? Uh, and then where can they also get copies of uh, Mourning the President's?
1: Well, thank you so much for having, for being here and having the opportunity to share this book and share my work. People can find me on all of the social medias. Uh, I also have a newsletter called Imperfect Union, which you can either just search Imperfect Union or you can go to lindsaychervinsky.substack.com. And my last name is starts with a ch. Even if you butcher it, you'll find me because I'm the only one. Um, Just start with CH and you'll be fine. And I send out a monthly history essay, as well as all of the links to op-eds and podcasts like this one and um, any other events that I might have coming up. So it's the best place to stay on top of everything in one spot. Uh, If you are interested in learning more about Mourning the Presidents, you can buy it wherever you like to buy books. Or uh, until June, the University of Virginia Press, is offering 30% off on their website if you use the code 10, like one zero morning, not like the time of day, but like the practice we're talking about. So 10 morning on the UVA Press website, and it will get you 30% off the book.
0: Very, very good. The title of the book, and it is a fantastic one for people who love history, love American history, love information and wanting to learn more about the president's Uh, It's a terrific new collection to the canon of scholarship on the presidency. It's called Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. Our guest today has been Dr. Lindsay Travinsky. Uh, She is a presidential historian, a writer, and a speaker. She's a senior fellow at the Center for Presidential Studies at Southern Methodist University, and she also teaches about the presidency at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. She co-edited this collection of essays with Dr. Matthew Costello. Uh, Lindsay, it's a a wonderful, wonderful book, and uh, I just loved it. I I, I I want to spend more time with it. I'm going to go back and read it again because uh, there's just so many little nuggets of information I highlighted that I want to go back and learn more of. It's just a terrific book. And I know you and uh, Matthew worked hard on it. So congratulations to uh, you all on the book and, and continued success in the future. And we appreciate you being on the show.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And that definitely makes all of the hard work worth it.
0: My pleasure. Great to have you on and we'll have you back on in the future as you keep writing and keep working uh, on more historical scholarship for certain. So thank you so much. We want to take forward to it. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. We want to take a moment to uh, also give a special shout out as we wrap up this episode of Now Appalachia to say thanks to our executive producer of the program. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work that she does behind the scenes to make these podcasts available to all of you across all of the podcast platforms that you like to download and listen to. So thanks, Pam, for all the work uh, that you do. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted program and podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.